Okay. Just want to keep keep mentioning uh, this. If if um, if you either are interested or have questions about um, about membership, please see one of the elders and let us know. Uh, Sunday school. We are um, we are working our way through a uh, uh, an adult Sunday school class that is focusing on. Um, kind of an introduction to Life in Christ Fellowship. It might get used in the future if we need it again as a, as a kind of a separate elective class. And we're not going to make the same people go through the same thing all the time. But I've wanted to, uh, I've wanted to develop this uh, a little bit over the years. And, um, and I think there's a place for it. There's a, there's a place for it. I, I've kept telling the Sunday school class, um, there's some of the things we're going to talk about that are 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 hard for me to get excited. I want to just open my Bible every time and stay, stay doctrinal, right? But, but there's some, some topics of conversation that are useful. Um, and, uh, uh, and issues like, um, like membership uh, and, and what it means to be a fellowship, what it means to be a congregation, a, a, a family, uh, a church family, are, are, there are issues that, are, that have a place, they're important. And so... Um, if you have questions, uh, please see one of the elders and or come on out for Sunday school and, uh, and you can be part of those conversations. Um, we, we, uh, uh, I try to, make, to, to keep it a two-way street or at least give the invitation for it to be a two-way street of, of discussion back and forth. So, um, so keep that in mind if you have any interest uh, in participating in Sunday school. Tonight, we begin small groups. Six o'clock tonight, our small groups will be meeting in three different places. Um, so let me just take a second on this. Um, I am, uh, I'm excited to talk about the fruit of the Spirit with you. I'm excited to go through this. Um, tonight, and I, I don't know exactly, we haven't, we, we haven't done this in a way that mandates what each of those who are leading the groups are going to have to talk about we're all going through the same book where it's all going to be the same subject matter, but it will have its own flavor from, from small group to small group. But the book that was handed out for Father's Day, um, uh, the first chapter focuses uh, a bit on the relationship between the gifts of the Spirit, which we focused on at our last small group um, uh, sessions, and the, the relationship between the gifts of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit. I think it's, a, it's actually a pretty helpful, useful, and interesting discussion to start uh, our focus on the fruit of the Spirit. So let me see. Uh, tonight at 6 o'clock, one group, I, I hope I don't see surprised faces when I say this, but one group is meeting at the Jodon's home. <laughs> No shock, right? <laughs> Didn't think so. Um, the the uh, Allgaiers group, which will ordinarily be meeting at, at uh, the Davis's home towards Carlisle, will tonight be meeting at the Jodon's home. So if you are thinking of participating in the, in the meeting that's going to be happening out toward Carlisle, tonight you'll have to drive further. I'm sorry, but the Jodons have graciously opened their home, and, um, and I'd encourage you to stay plugged into one of the groups, give you an opportunity to build some relationships, give you an opportunity to get to, get to know folks that are 
part of that small group on a regular basis. I just encourage you to stick with it. Um, it's going to be uh, the month of July, the month of August. Um, we're going to be focused on these small groups. So Jeff Allgaier's group is going to be meeting at the uh, Jodon's home. Um, Alex and Whitney's group will be meeting at the Kaufman's home tonight. And the group that I'm going to be leading is going to, is going to meet at Chris Patterson's home tonight. So if you have any questions, if you need directions, ask around, find somebody that can, that can give you information. I know information was sent out in the uh, church email. So, um, so please, please look. It's in the bulletin as well, yes. So get a bulletin. So we're, we're trying our best to make this as accessible to everybody as possible, encouraging you to be a part of one of these small groups. I think it will be... Um, it will be useful time spent. I think it will be useful time inve invested, <clears throat> both for the sake of building relationships and also for the sake of, of focusing on the growth of our faith. Um, that being said, if, if you're a dad and you did not receive one of the books last, last week, if you weren't here or you forgot to take a book, there's, I think, six or seven of them left back there. Please make sure that you take one. That's a, a gift to you. And that's the book we're going to use as our primary text for our small groups. So, um, so that's what's taking place tonight. Did I cover that enough? Any questions? Anything that I didn't make clear? All right. So uh, small groups starting tonight. Um, uh, young adults will be meeting this Thursday night at the McKinsey's home. Uh, so, young adults, this Thursday night, uh, 7 o'clock, we'll be meeting at, at Johnny and Bria's home. So, uh, you, can, <clears throat> you can be preparing for that. All right. Um, please do get a bulletin. Uh, it'll be helpful to you. You'll have, have the... Oh, there's no more bulletin. We can print more. If you don't have a bulletin and you need one, we can get another one. Or you can take this one. All right. Um, let's turn our attention to Scripture this morning. Our theme for this year is uh, Jesus First. I wanna, I'm not going to mention that every Sunday, but I want to keep it before us. We're currently in a series of messages entitled Encounters with Jesus. Encounters with Jesus. These are people who during Jesus' earthly ministry met Jesus, had an encounter with Jesus. Uh, an encounter that that uh, deeply impacted each of their lives. Uh, and you remember some of the ones that we've gone through. I won't list them all this morning. What happens, uh, however, when someone's encounter with Jesus is inconvenient? That is, what happens when we read of an encounter with Jesus and the encounter that we read is something that Maybe on some level we wish wasn't there. Maybe, maybe it's just one of those things that we have questions about that we think to ourselves, Man, why did Jesus deal with that person the way he dealt with that person? Why did he say that? Why did he deal with that person that way? It's one of the things I appreciate about Scripture is that it is not shy about inconvenient truths. It's not shy about inconvenient truths. Um, the, the great heroes of the Bible 
are almost exclusively flawed people. In fact, what we know is that they were all flawed people. It's just that almost all of them have some of their flaws exposed. There's a couple of them that, that have some pretty important places in Scripture that don't seem to have any flaws exposed. Daniel's the biggest one that comes to mind. He gets a significant amount of press in Scripture, but there's nothing that you look at in his life and say, well, the Bible reveals something about him that when he really blew it in that instance. Most of the heroes of Scripture, however, really blew it somewhere along the way. And Scripture's pretty open about it. It, it, it exposes that. There are times when some of the things that we see in Scripture are rather inconvenient. And that's what I'm describing. That's what I'm titling this message. An inconvenient encounter? Question mark. Because I think what we find out is when it's all said and done, it's really not inconvenient at all. But when you first read it, it sure sounds inconvenient. When you first read it, it sure sounds like, what in the world is going on with that interaction? What in the world is taking place in that encounter? There's an account in, the, in Matthew's gospel. It gets repeated in the gospel of Mark that appears to be one of those super inconvenient kinds of accounts. So let me just say this about in, inconvenient encounters. That's where I want you to turn. That's what we're going to read. But let me say these two things about inconvenient uh, scriptures. The first one is, we must not duck them. We must not avoid them. We got to face them. Um, uh, the, um, the Assemblies of God logo, years gone by, A-G, used to have underneath it all the gospel. All the gospel. A-G, all the gospel. If you're going to, if you're going to proclaim scripture, you got to deal with all of it. You can't cherry pick it. You got to deal with all of it. Yes, there are places where it's, it's, it's inconvenient, but yes, we have to deal with all of it. So, so we must not duck it. We must not avoid difficult passages. And secondly, we must not be lazy and just stay on the surface. We can't just say, all right, well, I got to face it and, and I'm going to read it. Uh, but then we have to do some work. And say, what in the world's going on here? Why is this here? What is taking place in this passage? What is it that's really intending to be communicated? We can't afford to be lazy and we can't afford to stay on the surface. We got to do some work when we approach Scripture. We have to do some work. So that's what we're going to endeavor to do this morning. In Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 through 28, we read about Jesus' encounter with a Canaanite woman. Let's read it together. Matthew 15, starting in verse 21. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman came out from that region and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But he did not answer her a word. Inconvenience number one. And his disciples came to him and kept asking him, saying, Send her away, for she is shouting out after us. Let me pause there. What does it mean that they kept on asking him to send her away? 
Was his ignoring of her a one-time thing? I don't know how long he ignored her, but he ignored her for a bit. Enough for them to say more than once, Lord, send her away. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, boy, is this inconvenient. It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, your faith is great. Be it done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. Okay, let's take an honest look at this account this morning. Jesus' behavior toward this woman seems rude at best. It seems rude at best. And frankly, it seems like it could possibly be downright racist at worst. She's a Canaanite woman. And he refers to her offhandedly as a dog. The first thing he does is ignore her. He ignores her. She cries out to him. Her daughter's demon-possessed. She needs help. She wants help. And Jesus begins by ignoring her completely, not even answering her, so that the disciples repeatedly say to Jesus, would you just send her away? Send her away. She's yelling after us. She's calling after us. Jesus' first response is to ignore her completely. His second response is to say, I wasn't sent to you. I wasn't sent to you. I was sent to the house of Israel, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I wasn't sent to you. You're a Canaanite. I was sent to the Jews. You say to yourself, well, doesn't God care about everyone? Wasn't God interested in people outside of Israel? But Jesus answers her the second time, not by ignoring her, but by pointing out that she was an outsider. She wasn't one of the ones that he was sent to. He was sent to the Jews. He was sent to the house of Israel. He says, I wasn't sent to you. And then the most inconvenient of all is the one I've already referred to. The third thing he does is essentially label her a dog. When she continues to cry out to him and say to him, Lord, help me, he says, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Well, it's pretty clear what he has set up there. I was sent to minister to the Jewish people. I was sent to, to, to minister to them, to give to them, to provide truth for them. It's not right to take what was intended for the children and give it to dogs, of which, by the way, you're one. Category of which you belong to. You're a Canaanite. You're not one of 
God's chosen people. It's a rather shocking statement. When you read it, it's rather inconvenient. I mean, it kind of begs the question, how could, how could Jesus, if he was reflecting the heart of the Father, a heart of love toward people, how could he deal with this woman this way? How could he ignore her? How could he, how could he tell her so forthrightly, I wasn't sent to you? How could he then refer to her in this way that was, frankly, common in the day? It was common to refer to the Gentile dogs. That was a common phrase in the day. But it was absolutely a derogatory term geared toward anyone that was not a Jew. I told someone this story this week. I was reminded of it in the conversation. Many, many, many years ago, um, it was a Sunday night. There was someone playing the piano and uh, an older person playing the piano. And he had a skin condition. And the doctor had prescribed some ointment for him. And he had applied ointment to his forehead and, and, and for these, these wounds, these sores that were there. And during the greeting time, I walked over to the piano and shook, put out my hand and went to shake his hand and greet him. And he looked at me and he said, you don't want to shake my hand, it's all greasy. And I looked at him and I said, it's all right, I don't mind, I'll shake your hand anyways. And he just like this looked at me and said, oh, that's right, you wouldn't mind a little grease, would you? You're Italian. <laughs> Go ahead, laugh. It was hysterical. <laughs> so I made sure I told everybody what he had just said. How many are familiar with the term greasers? Wops? It's okay. My wife is over there. I'm talking about myself here. <laughs> I can give you a couple more. How many of you know a couple more? <laughs> How many of you find yourself, I, I think it's actually good. Did anyone else feel uncomfortable hearing me say those words out loud here? Give me a little bit of a shake if, you, if, if it makes you uncomfortable to hear that. You're not terms you're supposed to use toward people. They're not complimentary. The term dog in that day was exactly that kind of term. It was exactly that kind of thing. Your discomfort illustrates the reason why this is such an inconvenient scripture. It's not the kind of term that would be appropriate for the Lord of life to use toward one of his own creatures. It just is so out of place. It's so inappropriate. But it was a common term. It was a common term in the day. You read it, and, you, and you're almost taken back. It seems like it's so out of character. It's so beyond the pale of what would be expected from the one who, who, who was, was constantly reminding his disciples, I came to seek and to save the lost. Right? It's so out of place. It's an inconvenient term. As people outside of the Mosaic Covenant, Gentiles 
could not be right with God. They were outside of the covenant. They could not be right with God. And therefore, here's maybe the most broad term that could be applied to them. They were therefore unclean. Unclean. The outworkings of what it meant to be unclean meant you can't eat with them. You can't go into their homes. You can't eat their food because they are unclean. They're unclean. To associate with them will make you unclean. And you'll have to go through a purification ceremony before you can step into the temple and worship God the way you want to. Because they will make you unclean. They're unclean. And they make unclean everything they touch, everything they associate with. I mean, listen... I think in our day and age, we've got enough of a conversation of racism going on that you can understand what the issues are involved here. What it is that's happening in this account. They were unclean in their sin and looked down upon as dirty and undesirable. The dog term came because a dog was an unclean animal. It was one of the unclean animals. And so therefore, this, this moniker got associated with with all Gentiles, a Gentile dog was the phrase. And so the question becomes, did Jesus really use a racial insult? And if he did, did he mean it as an insult? It's a big deal. Did Jesus use a racial insult? And if he did, did he mean it as an insult? Now, I'm going to pause here. I have been wrestling with this all week long. This is not high on my list of things to do. But every once in a while, I think we, we have to face the issues of our day and face them with a certain degree of honesty. So please bear with me for just a moment. I, I'm going to guess that, that everyone is to, to one degree or another educated on what I'm going to say next already. But just for the sake of providing context that I think is going to be important at the end of this message, let me say this much. How many of you have heard the term critical race theory? How many of you would say you're pretty familiar with it? You know what it's about. How many of you have just heard it and you're not, you haven't done a whole lot of looking into it? Okay? Critical race theory. Let me just take a second with this. Did Jesus use a racial insult and mean it? Critical race theory. If you look into what critical race theory is, um, what, you, what you discover is that critical race theory applies the ideas of Karl Marx. He's not the only one. I know there are other influences. But, but in, in, in a, a simple way of explaining this, it applies the ideas of Karl Marx to the issue of race relations. Marxism was primarily, in the past, uh, a certain way, a particular way of viewing economics. Okay? The, the basic idea was this, that economics can be understood as 
an imbalance of power between capitalists and workers and and that it it, it was it was a pitting of one group against the against another capitalists were oppressors who took advantage of and got wealthy off the work of laborers and laborers were the oppressed always being used to the advantage of capitalists and the idea was that this is a completely broken system that can't be reformed and what's needed is a revolution what's needed is a revolt an overthrowing of the system completely and and in places where this 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 uh, ideology took root that's exactly what happened and millions and tens of millions of people died in angry revolutions and revolts with one group pitted against another group and finding a justification for murder and mayhem. Ugly time in history. Ugly events in nations. So Karl Marx's ideas as applied to economics focused on the imbalance of power between capitalists and workers. When it comes to society, however, the, the ideas that Marx, have, that, that Marx laid out have been tweaked and said, well, if we're not going to get this done, and, and listen, I'm not saying there's, there's one person, I, I, I don't want to sound conspiratorial, but let me, just, let me just say it this way. It would seem that for now, or at least over the past hundred years, the, the economic ideas of Karl Marx have been held at bay in this country. I know some of you would argue in the last number of years. Let's just look. We haven't become communists yet, okay? So let's, let's not go down that road for this morning. But what happened was, what has happened is that there was a very clever appropriation of these ideas. If we're not going to accomplish this, not now economically, let's take these ideas and see how they apply to society how they apply to our social structures. So we're no longer talking about capitalists and workers. What we're talking about now is majorities and minorities. Majorities and minorities. And this is where critical race theory steps in. What it proclaims is it takes this idea of Marx and says there's an imbalance of power between majorities and minorities. And, and that means that majorities are oppressors taking advantage of minorities and mistreating minorities. And minorities are the oppressed living under the tyranny of the oppressive majority. And, and all of life is explained like this. All of life is explained like this. Marriage should be viewed through the lens of oppressive males tyrannizing females. You can, just, you can just keep going down the road. Heterosexuals are the majorities. Homosexuals are the minorities. Heterosexuals are the oppressors. And 
homosexuals are the oppressed. And, and it applies to race, and it just keeps going as we fragment people, put them in a category, and either label them oppressor or oppressed. And please hear this. It's a recipe for revolution. It's a recipe to encourage people to hate each other enough that eventually somebody's got to either suppress somebody else or someone's got to overthrow somebody else. It is a constant boiling turmoil that, that, is, that is unsettling any, any stability and, and, and causing just mayhem. This is the idea. Majorities, oppressors. Minorities, the oppressed. A little bit more, just for a second. Interestingly, according to cr critical race theory, what this means is that a minority cannot be racist. They're not capable of being racist. The reason is simple. They don't have power. You see, Marx's ideas were all power-based. They're power-based. The, the, um, the capitalist has the power. The worker doesn't have power. Same, same here. Majorities have power. Minorities don't have power. The, the point is this. If you have power, it is, it is assumed that you are a racist. And if you don't have power, then you are clearly not a racist. You're not capable of it because you don't have any power to be one. Doesn't matter how you feel in your heart toward anybody. All that matters is you don't have power to express it. As a result, if you don't have power, you're not capable of being a racist. These are the ideas that are being presented. Majorities are oppressors. And, and we have a, a, a whole series of catchphrases, which, by the way, in and of themselves, are not necessarily bad or wrong. But listen, isn't this just the tr one of the tricky things about the day and age in which we live? Is that words are appropriated in certain ways. Have you ever noticed that nobody wants to associate with something that has a bad label attached to it, right? So no one wants to be, no one wants to be pro-death versus pro-life. Nobody's going to be that, right? So there's pro-choice, but no one wants to be um, pro-censorship as opposed to pro-choice. So both sides find their pro that they can label themselves. Pro-life, pro-choice. We're going to set the argument in a way that uses the words in the best possible light we can. Listen to this. Because that old adage that whoever defines the terms wins the argument is pretty correct. Whoever defines the terms wins the argument. And sadly what you often find out is that you're talking to people and you're using words and they're using words 
And you don't mean the same thing by the words that you're using, and you just don't know it yet. One of the clear ones that we've talked a lot about is this idea of tolerance. We don't mean the same thing when people talk about tolerance anymore. Some people mean, more or less, well, just live and let live. Other people mean, by tolerance, that's not good enough. You must approve. You can't just let live. You have to approve. You have to approve. So we've got this disconnect, a disconnect over language that is very, very, very significant. And so, listen, how many of you would agree that, that it's probably not a winning proposition to stand up and say, I am anti-equity. I am against social justice. I am, I, I am vehemently opposed to diversity and inclusion. I mean, you're going to lose. By the way, you've already lost. Right? These terms have already solidified themselves in our culture. They are absolute truths, and they are, in many respects, at this point, they are unshakable. The question is, what do people mean when they use them? These terms that, that, that in many respects, if we were discussing the ideas behind them, there'd be a lot for us to agree with. The problem is they've been appropriated in ways that have a different agenda behind them. They have a different agenda behind them. Now, I want to say this as... Um, as, as lovingly as I can, as gently as I can. I'm not sure what word to use at this point. Do, do you remember, do you remember um, when Haman was trying to destroy the Jews? Do you remember Queen Esther? what she said to King Ahasuerus. She said, there's an enemy that's, that's trying to destroy my people. If all he were trying to do was enslave them, I wouldn't say anything. If that's all they were trying to do, I wouldn't say anything. But he's trying to kill them. He's trying to wipe them out. And now I must say something. It's kind of how I feel about this. There may be differences of opinion about when to speak out on an issue. There's a large part of me that says, I, I, listen, I know there are going to be those of you in here who are going to just violently disagree with what I say next. It's okay. Um, I understand your position, and I've, I'll, I'll validate it. It's, it's, it's got some strong points to it. But if all they were trying to do is undermine the American way of life, well, that would be significant. It would be sad. I, I think it's worth, it's worth being concerned about. It's probably worth speaking about. But please hear this. That's not what has me addressing this this morning. What has me addressing this this morning is that that thing right there is anti the gospel. 
That destroys the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that I'm going to get uptight about. It destroys the gospel, my brothers and sisters. It is, it is an evil idea rooted in hell that destroys God's people, seeks to turn them against one another. It is essentially destructive. It is essentially divisive. It is essentially evil. And, and any Christian who embraces the ideas doesn't, hasn't looked deeply enough yet to know that they're embracing something that is diametrically opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's opposed to the gospel. That has to be spoken about. That has to be addressed. Now, racism, let me just say this. Racism is a real problem. It's a real problem. But not for the reasons critical race theory says it's a problem. That's not why. Racism is a real problem because it's one of eight billion sins that are rooted in human hearts. We are uncomfortable, afraid of things that are different from us. We are threatened by them. We are insecure around them. I'm not saying that everybody's a racist. I'm not saying that all those same levels of words are just insecure. I'm not saying they all reside in all of us equally. I'm just saying this. I'm saying that, that racism, the degree to which it is a problem, is a problem because it's a sinful human heart issue, like greed, like lust, like envy, like anger, like hate, like anything else. It's a sinful human heart issue. That's where it stops, and that's where it can end. And please hear this. And the issue of who's in power has nothing to do with it. When one person hates another person, there's a problem. When one person hates another person because of the color of their skin, it's a problem. The fact that one person might not have the ability, the resources, the opportunity to act on it doesn't make them any less hateful. It's a sin problem. It's rooted in that. And listen, this is where there is an unbelievable level of self-righteousness that arises that says, because I'm not in power, I am excused from the hard attitude that I'm claiming you've used against me. It's evil because it refuses to recognize the sinfulness that resides in all of us. It's there in all of us. Sin is rooted in all of us. To greater or lesser degree, it expresses itself in a variety of ways. Some are more inclined to racism. Some are less inclined. The ones who are less inclined just have a different sin than they're more inclined to. It's just pick your poison. All of us, listen, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The history of racism is a history of sin. 
It's just one of many aspects of the history of sin. One of many. But it's a real problem. Please hear this. The new birth brings with it an awareness and a conviction of sin that brings also the expectation of transformation. All right. We're going to get in dangerous water. I'm going to stand up now. <laughs> I was told I could do this. and Please hear this. Please hear this. The grace of God, the grace of God was given to us to forgive our sin, not to condone the persistence of sin. God's grace will absolutely forgive the sins that you have committed. God's grace comes in like a flood and washes out the guilt that would otherwise condemn you and sentence you to an eternal destruction apart from God. But my brothers and sisters, the message of the gospel of grace is that it took the death of the Son of God to purchase that for you. And that message means that God is not winking at sin. It means that sin is serious. It means that sin is ugly. It means that sin is an affront against Almighty God. And my brothers and sisters, where the gospel comes, where the new birth comes, where grace floods in, there must be an, an awakening in the heart that says, I cannot tolerate sin in my life in any form. I have to deal with it. You might struggle long. You might struggle hard. But struggle you must. Because listen, because the grace of God that brings salvation to all men has appeared to all, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust we should live righteously and soberly in this present age. That's what grace teaches us. When you hear grace as an excuse for ongoing sin, you're listening to an aberrant doctrine. Grace is not an excuse for ongoing sin. Grace is, bless God, the covering we need for ongoing sin. While we're in the fight to overcome it, while we are brokenhearted over it, while we are crying out to God to, for deliverance from it. But being comfortable in it is not the gospel. It's not the gospel. Listen, that is not the gospel. There's no place in the New Testament that condones comfort level with sin. My brothers and sisters... Where there is racism, it cannot be looked at passively and accepted as a part of life. You have to see it as a vile, dirty evil that needs to be kicked out of your life. Listen, if you care more about your daughter coming home with a particular skin color than you do whether or not he's born again, there's a problem. Because if he's a man of God, or if she's a woman of God, the other stuff doesn't matter at all. It doesn't matter. Please hear this. We can't let 
evil, define the terms for us. We should be, we should be willing champions of the, of the cause of not accepting racism in our world. But you're not going to tell me the terms I'm going to do it on. Because if you've got a different agenda behind the scenes, I'll stand with you on the issue, but I'm not standing with you on your agenda. And that's the problem we've run into here. Listen to this. As Christians, we cannot afford to be silent on the issue. Red and yellow, black and white. Boy, you would never write a song like that today. But since we all know the old song, I'll say the words. Red and yellow, black and white. They have always been precious in his sight. And Jesus loves all his children in this world. And, and any degree of looking down upon, of, of superior, superiority over a person based upon the characteristics of their physical body is an affront to Almighty God who made them in his image. Hallelujah. It's evil. It's evil. We cannot tolerate racism in our hearts. We have to kick it out. We have to kick it out. Boy, I hope for the internet and for whoever watches this, I, I don't even know if I want this online, but for whatever, whoever, I hope they hear that. That we cannot be accused of being a racist people because we refuse to sign on to critical race theory. We are against racism, but we're against it on different grounds. We're against it on different grounds. We're, we're against it on the grounds of the gospel. On the grounds of the gospel. Now, I just said that. I got a lot of head nods and a few amens. Thank you. But we're left with the problem of Jesus calling a Canaanite woman a dog. We're left with a problem here. Real quickly. Sorry. Critical race theory, let me just say this real quick. This is an evil to be lovingly resisted. <laughs> it's an evil. It's an evil that must be resisted. It must be resisted. All right. Let me just tell you a couple things about this story real quickly. I'm going to get to the main point. I'm just going to blitz through this first little part here. Just for the, for the sake of following the story, look at, look at the need of this woman. This woman was driven by a need. First of all, it was, a, it was a need that was driven by love. This was a desperate and impotent woman. She couldn't do anything about it. Her daughter was demon-possessed. Her daughter's demon-possessed. She's desperate. She's got a desperate need. It's a need that is fueled by love. She wasn't asking for herself. She was asking for the, for the child that she loved. It was a need that was fueled by that combination of deep love and desperate, I can't do anything about it, that made her cling to the Lord Jesus and beg him for help. The second thing, not only was it driven by love, but because it was driven by love, it was persistent. I will not take being ignored for an answer. I will not take no for an answer. You remember the parable of the unjust judge? The point of which Jesus said is that men ought always to pray and not cease. Sometimes you got to pray. What did the old timers call it? They used to call it praying through. Any of you remember the phrase? 
You got to pray through. You got to pray till you know you've been heard. You've got to pray until you get somewhere. Sometimes praying through meant, meant the, well, always praying through meant the answer came. It was either the answer you wanted or God giving you an understanding that allowed you to accept something different. But praying through always meant praying until you got an answer of one form or another. This woman was a woman who wouldn't give up. She was persistent. She was going to pray this thing through. She was going to pray it through. Her love made her persistent. The second thing we have to note is this. You know what this story doesn't give us? What we can't see is, listen, we don't know the tone of voice that Jesus used. We don't know how this was said. All we do is hear the words, and the words strike us as very offensive. But we don't understand necessarily the tone with which Jesus was speaking. Let me just do this real quickly. My brothers and sisters, I have been, I have been running into this, it seems like, almost nonstop. I have been running into an idea that the grace of God means it doesn't matter how you speak. I've already addressed what the grace of God is and isn't. James emphasizes the fact to us that the tongues that are inside our heads are a world of evil and that they are set on fire by hell. How does scripture have to say it to get across to us the idea that our tongues, the words that we speak, matter? That the words we speak matter. You know, I had zero idea I was going to be a pastor. Did you know that, that, the, that James chapter 3 was the first chapter in the Bible I ever memorized? There had been some other scriptures that I had memorized previously. But the first time I ever set about to memorize a chapter, by the way, the only reason I did it is, was for Bible quiz. The only reason I did it. I wanted, to, I wanted to win in Bible quiz. I was a competitor. So I, I memorized James chapter 3. How unbelievably, well, let's just say that in God's providence, he knows some of us need things even when we don't know we need them yet. <laughs> uh. Why don't you memorize James chapter 3, pal? Sure, sounds like a good idea, miss, whatever the teacher's name was. God's up there going, ha, 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 ha. Yeah, that's what he's going to memorize, all right. It's a world of fire. It's a, it's a world of evil set on fire by hell, James says. It's our tongues. Ephesians 4.29. Ephesians 4.29 tells us that we are not supposed to let an unwholesome word come out of our mouths. I am so tired of, well, how do you know what unwholesome is? I don't know. Maybe when Hollywood says there's swearing in this. Maybe even when unbelievers know that's bad language, believers ought to know it's bad language. Maybe. I mean, I would think that's a low bar of acceptance, right? <clears throat> Doesn't seem like that should be that difficult, but right? unwholesome words, unwholesome speech. Don't let an unwholesome word come out of your mouth. 
James chapter 5, verse 4 forbids filthy, foolish, crude language. I got to tell you this. I have some jokes that I have heard in my past that if I thought about them right now, I'd be tempted to laugh because they are funny play on words, but they're filthy. I could never repeat them. And if they cross my mind in a way that would make me laugh, my heart turns up and I have to say, God, forgive me, cleanse me from that. Because it's dirty, it's evil. It's not appropriate. It's not pleasing to you. It's, 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 it's recognizing that the words we speak matter. My brothers and sisters, your words have incredible power. Colossians chapter 4, verse 6 gives us the flip side. It tells us that our speech should always be seasoned with grace as with salt. That our words, as they're spoken when they come out of our mouths, ought to be ministering grace to the person that's hearing them. So can I tell you this? In the context of, of what we're looking at and the discussions that are going on in our culture, the trick of it for us as believers is to be able to look at somebody in the eyes and tell them how wrong they are while they love us for it at the same time. Do it in a way that we would learn to do it in a way that our words minister grace. I've said this before. This was one of the things that has disturbed me most. Um, regardless of what else you think, I remember listening to Ravi Zacharias's answer on a college campus when he was asked about homosexuality. He was so careful. It was like a seven-minute long answer. It took him so long to get there <clears throat> because he was stroking the person over and over and over and over again before he got to the thing. But as Christians, we don't accept this as a lifestyle that can be pleasing to God. And what grieved me was how many Christian comments were beneath the video <clears throat> pointing out in their minds what a compromiser he is. He doesn't have the courage to come out and speak the truth. I mean, I was tempted to get on there and make my own comment. No, he's just not a... He's not obnoxious. No, he got to the point. But he didn't cut off their ears on his way. My brothers and sisters, we are increasingly going to need the skill of gracious words while we're speaking truth. While we are speaking truth. Why? Because that's the only way that we have a chance for our words to be used by the Holy Spirit to draw people to the gospel. It's going to be necessary. It's going to be necessary. By the way, research tells us that between 70 and 93% of communication is nonverbal. That means the look on your face and the tone of your voice, my voice, matters significantly more than the words that we're saying. That's why you can sometimes talk to your wife and she says to you, why are you so mad? And you say, I'm not mad. Oh, yes, you are. Oh, no, I'm not. Yes, you are. You know why? Because the look on your face and the tone of voice. 
you might not be using a wrong word, but everything that's being communicated is anger. By the way, that, that's not just a man problem. That can also be a woman problem as well. Right? My brothers and sisters, these things really matter. It's part of the reason why we're studying the fruit of the Spirit as a congregation. We can learn to live like Jesus and act like Jesus. So here's the thing. We don't know the way Jesus said this. So the question is this. Is there anything in the text that would give us a reason to assume that Jesus was speaking in a way that was not offensive? Is there anything in the text that would give us a reason to interpret Jesus' interaction with this woman in a more positive light than what it looks like. And, and boy, I would just like to tell you that the whole story is 100% the opposite of what it looks like on the surface. In fact, I don't know this for certain. I would not be one bit surprised if Jesus, when he said, when he said, um, it is not right to throw bread that belongs to children, to dogs. I would not be surprised one bit if he didn't smile at that woman and wink at her when he said it. I wouldn't be surprised. We weren't there to see it. Here's what I know. At no point during the interaction was she, was she scared of Jesus to the point of not asking him again. She kept coming back. She kept coming back. She kept coming back. And even after he used the word dogs, rather than just be insulted and walk away, she has the presence of mind to say, yes, Lord, even dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their children's, their master's table. Where does the woman come up with that from? Please hear this. I actually think it was because the whole scenario and Jesus' tones and the way he looked, the interaction between him and this woman was actually drawing her in instead of turning her away. And you say to yourself, that's a nice idea, but boy, you'd better prove it. Now, this is the last, this is the last bit for this message. Please notice what actually happens in this chapter. How did Jesus speak? Notice this because this is what matters above all else. I only read to you verses 21 through 28, but please pay attention to this. First of all, Matthew was writing to Jews. His book is the most Jewish of all the books. Let's just start there. This idea of a Gentile dog would have been very familiar to the Jewish mind. Very familiar. These are the people he's writing to. Jewish people. Number two, what had happened? Jesus had taken his disciples to Gentile territory. You should read the commentators. They have a fun time with this. Did Jesus actually go into Jer Jer Gentile territory or did he just come to the border of Gentile territory? It almost doesn't matter. He went to the place where he was likely to run into Gentiles is the point. He took his disciples there. He took his band of Jewish men there. 
took them right up to the border of the Gentile lands or maybe even into the Gentile lands where they would consider themselves unclean. He took them to a place where they would be exposed to Gentiles is the point. The third thing to note is this. Please hear this. Why did he take them there? The reason he took them there, if you read back to verse 1 and you read through the chapter, what happened is Jesus had just had a lengthy debate with the Pharisees about what it means to be clean and unclean. And you know what the point was he made? He's talking to Jews who were so proud of their ceremonial cleanness. We don't eat pork. We don't. We don't. We do this. They were so proud of their ceremonial cleanness. And Jesus is looking at these Pharisees and he's telling them that cleanness has nothing to do with the outside of the platter. It has everything to do with what's on the inside in the heart. And Jesus is proclaiming to these Pharisees, he's telling them, you're not clean the way you think you're clean because you're dirty on the inside. And what does he do? He takes his disciples to people that they would have... He's taking what he just did with the Pharisees and said, now to his disciples, I'm going to make you practice it. I told... Listen, it's fascinating you read the whole chapter. When Jesus is done with the Pharisees, the disciples are like this. You'll, you read it. You go back through the chapter. Here's the... Don't you know that you offended the Pharisees? Don't you know you offended them? And Jesus has to look at, him, look at his disciples and say, I'm not worried about offending them. You've got to understand that it's what's inside that makes a person clean, not what's on the outside that makes a person clean. That on the outside, what makes a person, in your eyes, dirty is not what really makes them dirty in the eyes of God. It's all about what's inside of here. Listen, this is the tension that they kept struggling with when Jesus came. It's, it's the tension that Peter experienced when he's on that rooftop and a sheet comes down and there's all kinds of unclean animals and a voice from heaven says, kill and eat, Peter. And Peter says, nothing unclean has ever come into my mouth. And the voice from heaven says, don't you call unclean what I have made clean. And the whole story is there for a specific reason. Because I'm about to send you to the home of a Gentile named Cornelius and I want you to preach the gospel to him because I want to save him. And that notion of clean and unclean that would keep you from him must be torn down and ripped out of your heart. You got to get rid of it. So what's going on? What's going on is... These Pharisees so proud of their cleanness. Jesus rebuking them and telling them about the dirtiness in their heart and defining what true cleanness is. And the disciples, you're offending them. You're offending them. And Jesus, I'm going to tell it to you straight. It's what's on the inside that makes a person clean or unclean. It's not what's on the outside. Let's go to Tyre and Sidon. Let's go where the Gentiles are. Come on. And he takes them there. And he puts them where they have to meet a Canaanite woman. Where it's inevitable they're going to run into a Gentile. And then Jesus proceeds to show his disciples exactly how ugly that spirit is. 
Lord, help me. Well, let's just ignore the dirty one. Lord, help me. I didn't come for you. Lord, help me. It's not right to give the food that belongs to the children to the dogs. And then you know what? What he's able to proclaim, this woman looks at him and she says, but even, even the dogs eat from the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And what does Jesus answer for all of his disciples to hear? Oh, woman, you have great faith. And that's what determines whether I will heal your daughter or not. Has nothing to do with being a Gentile has nothing to do with being a Canaanite. When I see faith, I will answer. And I don't care if it's a Gentile or it's a Jew. Couldn't care less. I think that in everything Jesus did, he did it with a look on his face and an attitude in his heart that was going like this to that woman. Just come on. Keep on. A little bit closer. I don't think he was looking at her, shooting daggers at her when he was keeping silent. And when he said to her, I didn't come for you. I think he was saying it with a look on his face, that nonverbal communication. I think he was doing it in a way that was saying like this. God, just try a little bit more. Not the dogs. She persists and she persists. And listen, when these disciples are done with this account, they're left with the undeniable fact that what Jesus proclaimed is that what matters is not the outside of the platter. It's when I see faith in a person's heart. And when I see faith, nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. Was it a, was it a, drastic, was it a drastic approach? Yes. But you know what? When you run into racism that's that deep, it takes a drastic approach. I'll use your terms, and then I'll use them against you. Then I'll use them to teach you a lesson. I think everything Jesus did was, was absolutely calculated to teach these men that what matters is faith in the heart responding to the gospel. This was an illustration. This was an illustration that gave him a chance to to teach his disciples that what he had been teaching them through his words to the Pharisees now had to get put into practice. And you've got to live in a different way than you've lived before. You've got to do it differently. I think it was a powerful sermon illustration lived out in front of them. I'll use the words that you would use, but I will do something completely different from what you would have ever done. I'll heal her daughter. And I'll commend her faith. My brothers and sisters, here's the point. Why, why, I, I, why did I talk like I did about critical race theory? I want to say it again. It's only one reason. We can't tolerate anything anti-gospel. We can't tolerate anything anti-gospel. That means I can't tolerate racism. It's anti-gospel but I can't tolerate a false cure for racism because that's anti-gospel too. The gospel transforms us. It transforms us. 
This is why, listen, this is why Scripture declares that you and I are strangers and pilgrims in this world. We are actually called to be less racist than the people out there that are screaming about racism. But we're called to deal with it from the transformation of our hearts on the inside. We have to be able to be so courageous that we're out of step with the philosophies of our world while we're out-gooding them. We'll actually achieve the no racism thing in the church of Jesus Christ. The rest of you just whistling Dixie. You hear? We must put our hearts before God and let the gospel transform us. And we must fight for the gospel. We cannot give up the ground of the gospel. And if every once in a while you have to do extreme sermon illustration, boy, it better end with someone's salvation. <laughs> it better end with a demon being cast out. That's all it was. It was just a dramatic sermon illustration. Teaching his disciples to look for faith and to be gospel-oriented people that don't care about the outside what it was it's powerful it's powerful when you understand it it's powerful would you close with me this morning i want to close with a song we haven't closed with a song for a while let's stand boy I, yeah i'm not going to say it anymore you're used to it by now <laughs>